All right, First Peter chapter 5. We will get through the entirety of verse 8 today. I know. This is, I've titled this, The Fundamental Attitudes for the Christian Part D, Part 2. It's the second part in a series that may be three or four. We'll, we'll see how it goes. It's not me. It's Peter. He keeps saying things that when I dig into it, there's just so much to say. So it's not me. It's him. As we looked at last time we were in First Peter, before Easter, we saw that Peter recognizes that his time to put up his pen is getting close He's given the full weight of his argument, and what is his argument? What is the main thing he wants Christians to know is that it, they may rightly suffer according to God's will. When Christians suffer, it may not be a judgment. It may not be a disciplinary action. It may not be because of anything wrong that they have Done. When you suffer, it may not be because you have done anything wrong. In fact, it may be because you've done something right. It may be because you have made a profession and have decided to stand for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter has gone through some considerable lengths to prepare us to suffer well, to prepare and to equip Christians to suffer well, purposely, for the glory of God. And there's one final thing he wants to do, and that's remind Christians of the seriousness of the hour. And in light of that seriousness, he exhorts us all to have several important fundamental Christian attitudes. He wants to see these things in high gear in the Christian. In you and in me. The first we saw was an attitude of submission, which, as we talked about, it was a mark that's to be found in all Christians everywhere, but especially the young men who have a great propensity to rebel and reject their leaders in the church. Secondly, Peter widened the net and he gave us that one size fits all garment that we are all to wear and that is the apron of humility we were called to put on the slave's apron as it were and to think humbly of ourselves and to think humbly towards one another third to undergird the call to undergird this call that we need to not make such a priority of grasping and striving for our own needs and our wants, Peter called us to trust. He called us to trust God. He said that all of our anxieties are to be cast, thrown, flung, hurled on a loving God who personally and intentionally cares for you. And that's where we left off in verse 7. And today in verse 8, we get a fourth and a fifth fundamental attitude for Christians, as well as uh, the, the reason why it's important to apply these attitudes. 
the fourth and the fifth attitude as well as the reason for the whole lot. Let's read verse 8. Peter says, Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So, our first point for today, the fourth attitude in the list, is the fundamental attitude of self-control. The attitude of self-control. And Peter says, be of sober spirit. Be of sober spirit. That's the fourth fundamental attitude for us. And I've called it self-control. I'm actually getting that from Alexander Strzok. The, The word literally is sober, to be sober. And at face value, this means to have in your possession what you lose when you're intoxicated or inebriated. And so this word to this command to be sober, it means more than merely don't be intoxicated, which the which your NASB or uh, most rendition uh, translations will recognize. And so the NASB will provide the word spirit, be sober in spirit, be sober in perhaps mind, be sober in your attitude. And so this command means to have an attitude that is contrary, that is opposite of the loss of control and judgment that comes when a person is inebriated, when a person is under the influence of drunkenness. So this is a spirit of self-control. This is a spirit where you are in possession of yourself. Alexander Strzok says that this word means an attitude of self-control, of balanced judgment of of a uh, it's a freedom from a debilitating excess or a rash behavior he says if there's if there's any disorder in your person if there's any disorder in your mind and in your life that distorts your judgment or your conduct this word means an absence of that disorder It's an absence of anything that that distorts or renders inoperable your judgment or conduct. Now, Peter has has already instructed us on two occasions to have this attitude. He said way back in 113. Some of you have been been with me uh, since we went through that passage. He said in 113 to prepare your minds for action and to keep sober and fix your hope completely on the grace that is to be revealed at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And there being sober in spirit is it's linked to having a prepared mind, a prepared and an orderly way of thinking, a mind that is it's primed and it's prepped for action, a mind that has its priorities settled and it's a mind that's not just winging it it's a mind it's an attitude it's a perspective that's not just flying by the seat of its pants who has worked with someone who has been coupled with someone who's figuring it out as they go along and they are always winging it 
and they're not prepared for action. They, that is a person who lacks self-control. And I don't know anyone who likes being coupled with someone who operates like that. Self-control or, or, or sober-spirited is, is linked. It is associated to preparing one's mind. And it's, it's also linked to, uh, in 113, to fixing your hope, to fixing, to settling, to binding your focus. I love that word. It's, it's a great word. It's used to describe attaching and securing the string used to hold up a, a tent. Uh, the, the, a tent line to a tent spike or peg. It's used to describe the binding of a flint or piece of hard wood to an injured limb so that you can keep it safe and snug and secure. So intentionality and purpose and intention help temper and strengthen and reinforce and refine your self-control. In 4.7, Peter also said, in light of the fact that all thing, that the end of all things is near. What was that? We said that was the return of Jesus Christ, which is something he alluded to in 1.13. He says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober, be sober in spirit for the purpose of prayer. There, self-control is linked to sound judgment. Sober in spirit, being in Having self-control is linked to right, balanced, accurate thinking. Do you want self-control in your life? Then begin thinking rightly about your priorities and circumstances, especially, says Peter in 4.7, as it relates to your prayer. So Peter thinks it is very important to instruct us to have self-control so much that here he has to say it a third time. Have self-control. Be sober in your mind, in your spirit. As, as a, a modern philosopher said, you best check yourself before you wreck yourself. Have an attitude that resembles that. Have self-control. Now, before we move on to to the next point, I have to ask, who finds self-control to be difficult? I do. Thank you. I ask myself, in utter frustration on occasion, why do I do that? Why did I do that? Why did I say that? I find the demand to discipline myself uh, to f- fulfill what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9:27 to buffet my body. I when I first read that I thought he said to buffet my body and that's actually the exact opposite of what he's trying to say. So it's not buffet the body, it's buffet the body. Why is that so hard? Why is it hard to say no to excess to put off excess when my when my liberty says technically you can do that you have the freedom you have the right technically you are allowed to do that to drink that to eat that it's technically okay but then on the other hand 
self-control says, but you don't have to and you probably shouldn't. In that match, in in that wrestling match, in that brawl, which of those two voices usually comes out on top? Why is self-control so difficult? Well, it should feel difficult because Galatians 5.23 lists self-control as a fruit of the Spirit. Self-control is listed as a fruit of the Spirit. It's the last in the list. And no wonder then that self-control is such a monstrosity of a struggle Because it's not a natural product. It's not a natural fruit of my flesh. Now, someone may interject and say, hey, I know a lot of non-Christians. I know a lot of carnal people, non-spirit-filled people who have self-control. How is is self-control then a fruit of the Spirit? And I would say in those cases that there is some alternate desire that is temporarily fueling the self-control, and that self-control is not coming from a changed heart, but is being forced upon the behavior, and it's not an organic product of the heart, but is a temporary fruit stapling. Now, some of you may ask, fruit stapling, what's that? Now, you have to imagine that you, you have an apple tree. An apple tree, you know, you may plant an apple tree so that you can eventually get what? Apples, okay. So you have this apple tree, you, you've dug a hole, you've planted it, you're watering it, maybe you're even fertilizing it, that's, a, that's pretty extreme. And it grows, and guess what? It's not producing apples. And you really want apples to be on this tree. It's actually kind of embarrassing that you have this apple tree that's not producing apples. So you go, you know, maybe you're going to help it along. You go down to the Safeway, you buy a, a, a crate of apples, and you, you staple it. You tie, you know, with using a really, maybe in a clear tape thingy, and you're, you're, you're attaching, superficially attaching the, this fruit to the tree that your tree should be producing, but it's not organically producing. That is, I, I think uh, Paul Tripp is the one who came up with this phrase. It's fruit stapling. Now, you have to, you have to observe something. The fruit looks to passerbys, as if the tree is bearing the fruit, right? Is the tree bearing the fruit? Is there an organic connection or relationship between the, between the root and the fruit? So what happens within a couple days, within a couple weeks? The, fruit rot, the, tree, the fruit rots, and you're going to either have to put more or eventually give up. That's fruit stapling. Uh, William McDonald says it's significant that the apostle, this is speaking back on Paul in Galatians 5, it's significant that Paul distinguishes between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. Works are produced by human energy. Fruit is grown as the branch abides in the vine. They differ as a factory and a garden differ. And C.I. Schofield points out that every single fruit of the Spirit is absolutely quizintentially foreign to the human heart. And that is especially true of self-control. I think 
to, to, to prove my point, all you have to do is look around and ask yourself, are the people of this world naturally producing lives marked by self-control? Are they naturally producing a life marked by self-denial, marked by this sobriety of mind and spirit? Are they ruling their lusts, their passions, their appetites, and their tempers, or are those things ruling them? Which do you see? I work at a high school. I already have my answer to that question. Peter says, be sober in your spirit, in your attitude, in your behavior, have self-control. And if you are lacking this fruit of the spirit, Christian, pray that God would reveal to you what is acting as the obstacle and as the hindrance to your walking in the spirit and bearing his fruit. If you are a Christian, you have the spirit. If you are a Christian, you have him. If, if you are a believer, you have him and he has you. And, and nobody has more of the spirit or less of the spirit than the next guy. If they are both believers. And if you, so if you are lacking self-control, maybe you have unconfessed sin in your life that's messing up your walk. Maybe you simply need to reorganize your priorities. You may be lacking in wisdom. James says if that's the case, then to ask God in faith, ask God in confidence for that wisdom, and James says he'll give it to you. Spiritually organic self-control and sobriety is a fruit of the Spirit that He, that the Spirit of God produces in each and every Christian. And Christians must be careful not to hinder the growth of that fruit. Especially when the stakes are up and the heat is on and Christians are under pressure and in suffering. And there's more to say on that in a minute, but... Let's briefly address the fifth attitude that is absolutely fundamental to the Christian life, and that is the attitude of vigilance. Vigilance. In the Greek, this is the second word in the verse. Be on the alert. Now, literally, the word means to be awake. But like sober it, the, the the nuance the the intended meaning goes beyond the literal idea of being awake it means being watchful being wary being aware being focused in other words being vigilant and, and these attitudes they're friends you know in 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 the in the the playground of the dictionary that they're playing together nicely and they go everywhere together they're on the seesaw they they go hand in hand you know i can't imagine a guard or a watchman who or or a shepherd someone who has a responsibility to keep a vigilant uh, eye out whether it's an eye out for the enemy whether it's an eye out for, uh, for a threat, whether it's an eye out for a predator, perhaps a, a, a poisonous plant that the sheep could eat, or, or even one out of a flock of a hundred sheep. 
missing. I can't imagine a shepherd or, or a soldier, someone who needs to be vigilant, lacking in self-control. At the same time, I can't fathom someone exercising self-control over their passions and lusts and desires and at the same time failing to be watchful or on the alert for temptations or spiritual hazards. These two attitudes, they go together. They go together. And so Peter says, in effect, be balanced. Have self-control and be aware Be alert. Be diligent. So those are the two attitudes he tells us to have today. Now we have to ask, why? Why are the stakes high? What is the cause of concern? Why do we need, why is it so important, Peter, to to have self-control and to be on the alert, to be vigilant? He tells us why, as he continues in verse 8. Because... Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He tells us why we need to have these important attitudes. Because we have a very real devil looking to bring us down, looking for ways to bring us down and to see us fall. And someone may ask, hold up, Aaron, you... You seem like a smart guy. You believe in a real devil? You believe in a real Satan? I mean, I'm willing to accept this God, you know, that, that God's there. You know, everyone kind of believes in God, but, but a real devil? Come on, this is the 21st century. Well, let me, let me remind you that, at, that Eve considered the, Satan a real person. There was an intelligent, there was an intelligence and a personality that convinced, that talked to Eve and convinced her to sin. That, you know, it wasn't an ideal. It wasn't evil, the embodiment of evil wrapped up in, a, in an ideal that talked to her. It was a person. It was a person who showed up in Job 1 and talked to God about Job. The prophets Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Zechariah saw Satan as a real person. Each gospel sees Satan as a real person. Jesus even taught his disciples uh, in the Lord's Prayer to keep uh, uh, to pray to, the, to God, keep us from who? The evil one. Jesus considered Satan a real person. Person, especially as he was being tempted by him. John, not only in the Gospel of John, but in his epistles and in Revelation, he considered Satan a real person. It was a real personality who possessed Judas, not an idea, not an ideal. Paul, when he says that a messenger from Satan came to torment him, Paul considered him a real person. Paul calls him, in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this world who has blinded unbelievers so that they won't believe the gospel. Paul considered him a real person. Peter, oh, Peter. 
Think back to what Jesus told Peter. Satan has asked that he would, could sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. I think Peter probably understood Satan was a real person. So, yes, I consider Satan to be a very real person, to be a real devil who's looking to bring us down and to see us fall. And he is called here three things. He is called, first, an adversary. He is an adversary. This is a legal term that describes a legal opponent that you would have when you were in court. And it could also be used to describe any enemy who is, uh, who is aggressive and who posed any kind of serious threat to you. You know, this isn't someone on the other side of the ping pong table. This isn't someone that you're shooting hoops with. This is someone who wants to, to bring the law down on you. He wants to see you fall. He's not willing to cohabitate with you. He doesn't want to share with you. He wants to subjugate you. He wants to put you into his service. And if he can't do that, he, will, he wants to see you dead and destroyed. Now, the Bible as a whole describes Satan as the adversary of God and of Christ and of the holy angels and of the church. But what do, how does Peter describe him here? Which personal pronoun does he provide that makes this very personal? Whose adversary is he? He is your adversary. Christian, you you. It, is, it would be a foolish thing to not recognize the seriousness that there is a real devil who wants to see you and you and you and everybody here who claims the name of Jesus. He wants to see you fall hard. He is your adversary. So he... He's your adversary. He is also called the devil. This is kind of a synonymous word to adversary. Uh, This is diabolos. This is the Greek rendition of the Hebrew word Satan, which means the accuser. So a a diabolos is, is 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 a malicious enemy who attacks and who slanders and who accuses and who threatens by the things he says. And then third, he is described as a roaring lion who, who's prowling around looking for someone that he can devour. Now, throughout the Old Testament, the lion was, was used as this powerful, strong, proud uh, beast, this elegant, beautiful beast that in an instant could become a savage killer, a vicious, savage killer. And that... That fits exactly Peter's motif here. You know, this isn't Simba playing around with with the gazelles and the the warthogs and um, the muskrats, saying "Akuna Matata, no worries." This is a fierce, strong beast prowling around for the kill. This is a beast 
prowling for food. And when he, is, when he has found that food, when he has made that kill, he roars and he scares off any other scavengers who think that they can share from his kill. This is his kill. He wants you to be his kill. He wants you, Christian, to be his corpse. And he wants everybody to know it when he gets what he wants. He doesn't want anybody to think that they could ever be on equal footing with him. He's the king, or the king of this world, to be precise. Jesus, three times in John, calls him the ruler of this world. As I said earlier, Paul calls him the God of this world. So within, within this world, within the sphere of his influence, within his kingdom, his realm, he is this relentless killer who will not hesitate, hesitate to claim a kill if he can manage it. He lives for the kill. He is looking for someone to devour. Present tense. It's what he does. It's what he lives for. I'm reminded of when Jesus' temptations in the wilderness were concluded. You know what the Gospels say about Satan? That he went away until an opportune time. He didn't give up. He merely retreated to come up with another scheme. He is looking for someone to devour. That word devour, literally, to gulp down. Not to nibble, not to taste, not to sip. Gulp. To consume. To destroy. Now, there were some valiant men of war, some experienced killers in the Old Testament, men like Samson and David. They encountered lions and and killed them. Peter... Peter, Peter uh, had a chance to, to with a with a sword at the end of the Gospels, and all he got was a part of an ear. So I don't think he's I don't think he's going to take down any lions anytime soon. He was he being a Galilean fisherman. I, I doubt he saw lions in Galilee, but tradition says Peter spent his final years ministering and pastoring in Rome. And if he was there, he undoubtedly saw or heard about the gladiatorial games where there were beasts like lions who killed people. Victims of war, slaves, enemies of Caesar would be thrown onto the gladiatorial arena where they would be given no provisions and sometimes they would be doused in blood and then thrown to the lions. Helpless slaves, helpless prisoners helpless victims, no means of defense, 100% certainty of slaughter. So Peter's words don't bypass his first century readers. They get the idea. I hope you do too. Satan, the devil, their adversary, your adversary, he wants to kill you. And if he can't kill you, he will do whatever he can to drag you through the ringer and make your life 
horrible. Why does he do that? Well, there are several reasons. In Genesis 3.15, God tells the serpent, which John later in Revelation 20, verse 2, identifies as Satan the devil, if there's any doubt. John tells us who it is. But back to Genesis 3.15, God said that because the serpent enticed man to sin and rebel against God, God would place enmity between him and the woman, between his seed and her seed and what's interesting is in the hebrew that that where it says her seed it is singular masculine so it, it, there is one man in particular that moses had in mind when he said that the seed of the woman would would crush his head who do you think that is and so satan fights against us because god himself has drawn the battle lines and he in the uh, and Satan and the demons and those in his grasp, his seed, they're on one side. And the woman and her seed, which is Christ, and those who are associated with that seed, those who are in that seed, are on this side. And so God has put you on Christ's side, opposed to the devil. That's one reason he hates you. God has made you the devil's enemy. Colossians 1.13, Paul says that God has rescued us from the domain of darkness. He has transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved son. You, in a sense, used to belong to the devil. You walked to the beat of his drum. You were enslaved to him and to his system until God had mercy on you and transferred you to a different kingdom. That's good news, amen? So he also hates you because you're no longer his, and you are now belonging to Christ. The lines are drawn, and biblical history is replete with the devil's attempts to wipe out that seed. Genesis 6, the sons of God cohabitating with people. Pharaoh in Egypt. The Canaanites time and time again trying to wipe out Israel. The Davidic line on a couple occasions almost being snuffed out like a little flame. Haman during the time of Esther. Those uh, during the time of uh, Nehemiah, those who opposed the, the, the post-exilic Jews returning to Judea, those who opposed the rebuilding of Jerusalem, King Herod ordering the slaughter of baby boys in Bethlehem. All of these and, and countless more in history can be shown to be energized by Satan and his demons and time and time and time again thwarted by God. And when Christ appears on the scene, Satan and his demons, they realize, hey, it's time, it's game time. We have got to up our ante. We have got to mobilize. So we see in the New Testament, in such a short time, vastly increased demonic activity compared to the Old Testament. Satan trying to subvert Christ's path to the cross, even offering him the kingdoms of the world. You remember that? One of the temptations... 
Satan offers him the kingdoms of the world, the only thing is, is he would that would somehow that would bypass the whole cross thing, the whole suffering thing, the whole you know bearing the sins of his people and 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 propitiating, satisfying the wrath of God. So Jesus would get a great thing, the kingdom, but stinks for us. Instead, Christ set his face like a flint to go to the cross, and he set his face to go and suffer and die and rise again, all according to the scriptures. And now that the message of that gospel has gone out, Satan's only option is to flood the world with counterfeit gospels. Each one nestled not in the grace of God, not in the accomplishment of God, but nestled in human strength, human achievement, human work. The only thing he can do now is try to obfuscate the gospel and prevent people being added to the kingdom of God. As we've said already in our study of 1 Peter, a Christian's good and excellent behavior serves to confirm, to reinforce, to add strength to his testimony. And so Satan's response is to afflict those who belong to Christ and hope that his efforts make their life so horrible that he can tempt them into sin. Which will, and here and here's why Peter is admonishing us to self-control and vigilance, is because that will certainly happen. We will give in to sin if you are not careful and watchful and have self-control and be vigilant. And when that happens, Satan achieves two objectives. When we are successfully tempted and lured and enticed into sin, Satan gets two things. One is that he damages and he hinders your Christian walk. You may not lose your salvation, but you will certainly, given enough compromise, given enough time, and enough sin, you will forfeit considerable blessing, considerable joy, considerable peace that come from a life of walking in hope and trust and obedience. And it's what the, it fulfills what the proverb, what Proverbs thirteen fifteen says that the life, that the way of the transgressor is hard. There's incredible loss in the life of a compromised believer, which makes the rest of your sojourn in this life much more harder, much more difficult, and far less joyous than it needs to be. And I'm convinced this is where Peter was the moment he heard that third rooster crow. You remember what the Gospels say that he did? He wept bitter. He didn't just cry he wept bitterly. And he could not stand to look at the Lord anymore. He, his, his shame, his guilt, his, his being undone drove him out of the presence of the Lord. That, I'm convinced that was the lowest point in his life. So 
Satan wants to see you undone. That when he gets that, that appeals to him being this ravenous, devouring, roaring lion. There's a second thing he gets when he gets you to sin. The second thing he gets when he gets us to sin, and that is a damage to our Christian testimony. A damage to our Christian testimony. The leverage he gets from successfully engineering the compromise, the sin, the fall of God's people gives him the grounds to try to rub it in God's face, and it lessens the effect, the effectiveness that that the testimony, that our testimony has. And what Satan wants to do is he wants to take the name of Christ, the one whose image you and I and every Christian is being daily conformed to. The, the, the name of the one whose disciples we are, the name of the one that we follow. He wants to take that name and he wants to throw it before the throne of God and say, look, see, that name means nothing to them. That name, everything you did, it means nothing in them. And this appeals to him being our adversary, our slanderer, our accuser. And I think that was precisely his intent when he went before the throne of God in Job 1. Now I have to ask you this, before we look at Job, I have to ask you this, who brought Job up in the discussion between God and Satan. Who brought Job up? That's right. God did. When Satan appears before God, God asks him, where have you come from? And Satan says, in verse, chapter 1, verse 6, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. And God says, well, that's nice. No, he says, have you considered my servant Job? God brings Job up. He says, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on the earth. Hey, that's where you're from, right? That's where you were just roaming around? Surely you've seen Job. Surely you've taken notice of him. Have you thought about him? God brings Job up. God elects Job as a candidate for testing and for suffering. And Satan says, hey, hey, does Job bless you for nothing? You have placed a hedge around him. You've blessed him. You've protected him. Remove the, remove the blessing. Remove the righteousness. If you take away his hedge, you will take away his faith. And God says, go ahead and try it. Go ahead and try it and see what Job does. And so Satan does everything he can. He, tries to, he, he does everything he can to make Job utterly miserable in the hopes that he can get Job to curse God, which is something no regenerate person can do. And the crazy thing is, is God lets Satan do it. God suggested Job as the candidate for testing, and God let Satan just unwind on him. I think he wants to sh- wanted to show Satan the power and the efficacy of the salvation that he had given Job. And so God let Satan 
take away his children. God lets Satan take away his wealth. God lets Satan take away his health. And then he leaves him with a wife that I imagine Job said, Hey, you've, you've taken away all these things. Why did you stop here? Can you take her too? And then he, uh, it, like the wonderful encouragement that she is to him, remember she counseled him, just curse God already. Just, just out with it. Die already. And to complement that encouragement, God, gives, uh, God allows Satan to send Job three wonderful friends who I, I'm sure they meant well, but they only made his suffering worse. They did nothing to comfort him, and they made his suffering only worse. Satan knows he can't undo the work of salvation in the life of the believer, but the most he can do, his only recourse, is to rob the believer of joy and to attempt to remove his testimony, to render his testimony inert and impotent. Christian, Satan wants to see you go down. He wants to see you go down hard and painful. So we must not become indifferent to the reality that Satan and his demons who are real, they're not omnipresent, they're not omnipotent. We're going to get into that next week. But they are real. We can't be indifferent to the fact, to the reality that they are real, that they are working to oppose Christ and all those who are in Christ. And we can't allow ourselves to find an excuse for our sin and suffering because if we do, we are asking to become victims of the enemy. When he discusses self-control, Alexander Strzok says, and he's talking about elders, but I think this is applicable to all believers, to all people, those who face many serious problems, pressures, and decisions, it is important for them to be mentally and emotionally stable. Those who lack a balanced mental and emotional perspective can be easily snared by the devil and false teachers. Let me repeat that. Those who lack a balanced mental and emotional perspective. You could, you could substitute the words self-control and diligence can be easily snared by the devil and false teachers. We must be sober and alert. We must exercise self-control and diligence because the st- Peter is telling us the stakes are high. You have a real enemy. So knowing that the devil's out there and we know a little bit more about him, we know what, a little bit about what he does, what are we to do? What are we to do? How are we to respond to him? Well, if you... No, I'm just kidding. I'll leave that for next week. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll resume in verse 9 next week. Let's, let's uh, close in prayer.